I, I heard that thump and it came across the the valley that we were in. And the Chinese, they're, they're on the other hills. And I heard that thump and I said, oh man, it's going to come this way now. Rich Bernier's ears did not deceive him. The incoming artillery round blew up a bunker he had just left. There were three men inside that bunker. They were all killed. Rich took serious shrapnel wounds after throwing his body atop a fellow soldier as they landed in the base of a trench. Rich Bernier healed from his wounds, came home from Korea in 1951, married, raised a big family, and has lived the American dream but he never shared any of his battlefield experience with his children. That chapter of his life, he says, was over and done. But in 2016, with his eldest son Rick as his guardian, Rich Bernier went on his Honor Flight Chicago mission, and everything he'd kept inside for nearly 70 years came flooding out. It was a release for a father, revelations for a son a trip of supercharged emotion. You're the baby in your family. You have five older brothers, and they all served in World War II, but you were too young. You were too young, but you had that... I was too young, yeah. But you knew of their experience in World War II. Did you have any notion at all that the call-up would come, the draft notice would come for you to go to Korea? Not really. I was so young to really realize that whole thing, you know, and my mother and father were the ones that filled out my paperwork when it came in about the army, you know, that I'd have to go. Mm-hmm. They, they filled it out. Now, you got to remember now, my mother and father were French. My mother couldn't speak a word of English, never could until she died. And, and in fact, when I was working at Jewel, she'd call Jewel up to talk to me. She says, Richard, please bring me home some cocktails to fruits. <laughs> you know, the noun is, you know, the verb is behind the noun. Okay. That's what they do right. in French. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, mom. I said, I'll bring it home tonight. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're sitting there and you're looking at your draft notice, did it sink in immediately? You were going to go off to war? No, not really. I thought I thought at first that this going to be over pretty soon because the army was already pushing North Korea back. See, and I thought, oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> I won't. I won't make it there. The hell, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, then the Chinese got involved, and that changed things. That's right. Yeah. So you oh. you go off to training and you wind up going over to Korea and you had had you ever been out of the Chicago area? Uh, yeah, I, I think I went the furthest I think I ever went was with my mother and father. We went to Indiana, and I was going to become a priest. And it was at the same time that I sort of knew that I was going to go to Korea too. So I told my dad, I was dad, I said we can't make that choice right now. I said, we just got to wait wait our time out. I'm not sure if I really want to be a priest. Well, I think you so, said you, you also felt an obligation to serve, not just because you got drafted, but because this is your country calling you. That's right, yeah. So when you get to Korea, tell me what you're thinking. Actually, we took a boat, 
and we went to Japan. And in Japan, they separated us. Some guys were really big, you know, and strong and muscular and everything. They were they were MPs, so they can guard the troops and guard everybody around them. They were just big guys. And then uh, we counted our numbers off. We had, must have had 200 guys there at the same time. And started counting one, two, three, you know, all the way down. And he says, okay, he says, all... All the ones that are even numbers, like two, four, six, eight, you know, you take one step forward because we were all lined up. So they took one step forward. He says, congratulations, you're now in the Marines. Just like that. And I wasn't in the Marines. I was in the, I was the one, you know, not the two, four, six, eight. So half of that group went, went to the Marines. I was going in the Army. How did you become a radio man? Right next to our 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 field, right right on the front lines, they had a French brigade, and that French brigade had like six tanks, big tanks, and I found out about that. And the, the captain asked me about that. He's he says, if you're French, he says, can you give them a designation of where to shoot? And I said, well, I can try like hell, because I knew French at that time pretty well. So, and they were French, you know, from Belgium. So I went there occasionally, maybe about one or two times in a week. And it was right next to us when our group was there. So I had to tell the captain, I'm going to go over there to the brigade where the tanks are at and help them figure out where the hell to shoot, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was and your that's what it, I did. it was your knowledge of French that made that connection. That's right. Yes, I just helped them for maybe a couple of months, and then we were transferred to a different hill. So, as a radio man, are you are you sending are you radioing coordinates for for uh, mortar attacks for for aerial attacks? What is your job as a radio man? I would call the commander if there's something going wrong or something, or he'd call me. He called me one time and he says, he says, what the hell is going on over there? And he says, I, I said, well, it's no problem. I said, it was raining, and it was raining for like 40 straight days, believe it or not. And he thought he heard something, and I was in the trench with him. And he says, he says, Rich, he says, he says, I heard something way over there, and I'm sure there's something there. I says, well, wait a minute. I just went on my side over here, and I took a hand grenade, pulled the pin, handed it right to him. I said, it's live, so you just throw this sucker right where you think it's supposed to go. And he did, and he threw that. That's why they called me to see what was going on, you know. So the, did the uh, grenade land where it was supposed to land? Yeah, he threw it right where it has, where, where he, he thought it was coming from. Mm-hmm. But it cured him right away. <laughs> it, it didn't work because he was nothing there. Okay. He was just hearing things. Well, that was kind of a, a gutsy move to pull the pin on the grenade and hand it to him. Well, no, it's not really because, you know, it's got a little handle on that thing. Right. Yeah, right, right. When you got that little handle ejected, that's when you got to throw it. So when I handed it to him, I had my hand down on that clamp, 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to go anyplace. And he did the same thing. He took it and put put his thumb on that that clamp. So he just had to take it and throw it, and the clamp come right off. You know. If before you go to Korea, you're thinking about becoming a priest, and you're you're deeply religious, you're going off to war, and that's a conflict in its very basic terms. You're going to fight. Uh, how, yeah. how, how did you reconcile yourself to being in the field and being in combat when, on the other hand, you're, you're very close to becoming a, a messenger of God? Yeah, right. Well, uh, it's all you got to do is when you talk, you just make sure you do the right thing and make the good decisions, you know. Mm-hmm. And don't be a bragger about this and a bragger about that. Just like make yourself an idol and and a good soldier. What was that? Got to rub off on some people. Lead by example, I guess. Yeah. What was it? What was a typical day like over there? Hard to say on that one because it all depends where the action is. You know, some days if there's a lot of bullets flying around and uh, bombs are blowing around, then you got to be really concerned about your own health and the rest rest of the people with you, you know. But some days, uh, it's very calm. And you can't understand why the hell is it so calm. And just three days ago, they were throwing all kinds of ammo at us. But I had a picture. I don't think I got it anymore. But this is this is a very true picture. I was standing outside. It was in the late fall, standing outside shaving. And I had my shirt off. So I was sort of cleaning myself a bit and, and giving myself a shave so I looked neat. Then the other thing, I don't think I ever mentioned this to one of you guys, uh, my dad, when I was 16 years old, my dad taught me how to cut hair. My three uncles were French, and they all cut hair. That's, that was their business. And my dad gave me some of the grandkids to practice on. <laughs> so I, I did a lot of practicing, believe me. And by the time I was drafted in service by 19, I was still cutting hair with my dad down in his basement. You know, he'd say, okay, Richie, cut these guys' hairs now. But these were not kids. These were bigger. So I practiced on both of them. So when I was in Korea, I wrote home and I told my dad, I said, Dad, I said, I got an opportunity. Would you please send me one of those hand clippers for cutting the hair? Because, you know, even at that time when I was 16, there wasn't such a thing as as an electric hand cutter. You had to use that the hand, your own hand, and, and go back and forth with it. See, mm-hmm. that's the old-fashioned way. So when I went to Korea and I got that box, I got plenty of talcum powder. I'd come back from a patrol at night, and there'd be guys waiting for me to cut cut their hair. There may be six or eight of them just waiting for me to come back from you know overnight. So you, I mean, sir, <laughs> you huh? Rich Bernier, the barber. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I cut one hell of a lot of heads. <laughs> In fact, I sent every penny of that home. I charged five bucks to cut the hair. Five bucks was a lot of money at that time. Oh too. yeah, yeah. And everybody's not everybody, but there's a few guys. Is five dollars? What the hell? You charging so much for it? I said, well, where in the hell are you going to go get a haircut? I mean, these are these are master sergeants, lieutenants, captains. I'm cutting everybody's hair. 
and I'm getting five bucks. Oh, that's good. Every time I cut some hair, if I had, I I wait until I got maybe about forty or fifty dollars, and I send it right straight home. Tell my mother to just put it in my bank account. Oh, good for you. It was also really, really cold over there. Hot and oh, cold. Yeah. What was it like? Yes. Oh, yeah, that was very tough. Well, you had a regular heavy-duty coat that they had, uh, gave everybody, you know. And then they also had one that was, like, for for rain. So you can wear both of them. Have a heavy coat and then that rain coat. So by walking around and being active, it, it wasn't that bad. You're sort of used to the, the weather, how it slowly starts, you know, and then it gets something like here. It starts in the fall and you get to feel a little bit and then all at once you get the snow and the ice. And I can remember going up the hills and we were slip sliding all over the damn place. And what you had to do is you had to always stay close to a tree so you can grab out of the damn tree just so you don't go down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, yeah, a, it was, it's a tremendously hilly terrain too over there. Oh, yes, it is. Well, tell me about the day uh, that the mortar hits. Uh, you're in your last month of service. You've got most of your points. You're getting ready to yeah. go home. And what happened? Yep. What happened? Well, like I said, you know, I you sort of get used to the sounds. You always had to watch for the sounds. And they can have an artillery shell come all the way across that valley onto our hill. And a lot of times, I'd say 80% of them went over the hill, thinking that we're in the back of that hill eating or something like that, see? So a lot of bombs were going way the hell back over there. But this one time, they must have had that that one trained so it went up in the, up towards the sky a long time and then came down. Now, you were, at that time, training your replacement. That's how close you were to coming home. Absolutely, yeah, and absolutely. you were with your replacement, and you had just exited the bunker. Yes, when it with hit. him. Tell me what happened. I, I heard that thump, and it came across the the valley that we were in, and, and the Chinese, they were, they were on the other hill, see? And I heard that thump, and I said, oh, man, it's going to come this way now. Okay. What did you do with your replacement? I had him in front of me so I just pushed him over so he lay down we had a trench that led us to each other's bunker See, a trench about six feet down but I fell right on top of him and I told him just stay right here and all at once it blew right in the doorway of where we left and they blew that thing to smithereens There were three men inside, I think you said. Yeah, three men, yeah. Medic and the sergeant and uh, the captain. The uh, explosive power of that uh, probably shocked you, and you also caught shrapnel coming your way. That's right. That's exactly right. I got shrapnel, but a little story on the side of this thing. On one of the hills, we replaced the Marines, and I looked around, and I found a guy that was about my size. And I walked up to him, I says, I said, would you mind giving me your flak jacket? You know, the bulletproof flak jacket. And he says, no, he says, I'm going home. 
he took his jacket off and then took the flap jacket off and gave it to me. So I put that sucker on and I, I slept with that thing. <laughs> so you had that flak jacket on when the when the mortar hit? Oh yes, absolutely, yeah. So that's it, that's what saved me. It it saved your life. Oh sure, sure. And I was so close that my jacket got some kind of uh, the concussion from that bomb that hit that thing. And it went through and gave me a, a few pieces of shrapnel that even even after I was married, I was still getting some shrapnel in my system and I'm getting it out. I had to go to the doctor and, and he says, oh, it'll be okay. So he just gave me a bandage and gave me two aspirins, <laughs> you might say. Oh, he said, it'll come out on its own. I don't have to cut you up. And did it? So, oh, yeah. It, it, it worked itself out. Well, so there's no problem there. Well, in in pushing your fellow soldier down, the guy who was be- going to become the radio man to take over your duties, you saved his yeah. life too. Oh, sure, yeah. But you know, after I left that hill in the helicopter, I've never seen him at all. I don't know what happened to him. So they probably gave him another another radio. Yeah. Go mm-hmm. on, continue the work. Did yeah. were you unconscious? Were you conscious? Could you talk? Oh, that's a good question. I was very delirious. I can remember I was I was walking around real fast, like I'm dodging somebody or something. Mm-hmm. And I was walking around real fast, and I walked right into a tree. And that's they said there's something wrong with this guy, you know. So that's they got me on a on a helicopter so you were medevaced out and you were flown from uh was it pork chop hill that's yeah, i think so okay. i think that's what it was so you're flown from pork chop hill to seoul and you that's where your wounds are tended to that's right yes when you got there were you alert enough to understand the nature of your wounds yes i, I understood it you know they they did the best they could with the shrapnel that i got that, that were still probably sticking out a little bit or something. You know, they, they patched that all up. But uh, because of my ears that were bleeding inside and out because of the concussion, they sent me right to Japan Army Tokyo Hospital. And when you got to Tokyo and they died, you had the blood coming out the ears and everything, did they say that you had any internal damage? Except for a little bit of shrapnel. It was mainly my ears that that were very infected. They were both bleeding inside and out. They said. so they had to they had to try to manage that and close it up or whatever. Yeah. You know. By the way, I'm getting I'm getting compensation for my ears from the VA. To this day. Yes, I still get it to this day. Oh, yeah. yeah. When you're in Japan, and you're being treated. There are two army officials who go to your parents' home back home. Back home. That's right. And yeah. they deliver a message to your folks, and your folks don't know what's happened to you. And what was the message that the uh, army delivered to your mom and dad? That I was missing in action because they didn't know where the hell I was at. Apparently, after I got wounded, nobody filled out any paperwork where I was at. Your mom and dad... Must have been mortified, fearing the worst. And yeah, oh yeah. And when you're you're in the hospital in Japan, 
you told me you found a board with your name on it. And That's right. What did that it's board? A big, big board and had different uh, divisions, and you know, and and they'd have the names right underneath it: who got killed, and who was wounded, and who's missing. And, Missing in action, yeah. We had a lot of those up there too, a lot. So, Rich, when you looked up at that board and you saw that your your name was in the column "Missing in Action," what did you yeah. say? What did you? What well, did you... I I was I was upset, and that, that's why I went right straight to the captain that was in charge, and I told him the story. And he said, oh, "Let me see that. Let me go there and look at the bulletin board." So he said, "Yep, that's you." I said, "Yeah, that's me." I said. And he says, well, this is the sad part about it is, is they already sent a couple of army guys over to your mother and father and told them you're missing in action. And I says, oh, my God. I said, now what do you want to do? He says, you just put a clean pair of pajamas on and get in your bed. We're going to take a picture of you, and we'll have that army group go back to your mother and father and tell them, that you're here. <laughs> and what a great relief that must have been for your folks. Oh, my God, yeah. When you came home, did you talk to your mom and dad about that moment? Did they tell you about the shock and the sorrow that they felt when they first were visited? You know, I don't think so. I don't think we talked about that at all. Well, they just Not were too. Much. They just wanted because, to see you and hug you. Yeah, when I came home, they flew me home, stopped at the Aleutian Islands right off of... Uh, Alaska. Then from Alaska, we went to Washington, and then we came to Chicago. And I remember getting off of that plane. There must there must have been fifty people there, maybe sixty people waiting for me to get off the plane. <laughs> so that was it. That was it. A bad time for me, but it was a happy getting home, you know. Were they mostly family and friends? Oh, that was all family. Uh, oh, my mother and father and my would-be wife coming up, you know. She was there. and A whole bunch of uncles and aunts and some of them were little kids, you know. What a, what a moment that was. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to think about it. I, I didn't think I'd make it home. At one time, a lot of times right in Korea, I didn't think I was going to make it. But God was good to me. I mean, I got chased by bullets and diving in foxholes and all kinds of stuff. But God was good to me. He's still good to me. I'm going on 92 now. <laughs> Well, you came home and you got married to uh, your love, and you uh, you raised a big family. How many kids did you have? Eight. Wow. And you went to work at Jewel. You were with Jewel for a long time. I was with Jewel 44 years. I was in charge of setting up all the brand new stores, and I did that for about six years. Every Jewel store, we had in Michigan, and we had Adam in Wisconsin. We had... Uh, 27 of them in the Boston area. So I'd have to fly out there because I'd have to order all of the fixtures for that store. Every shelf, every cooler, 
every frozen food case, the, you know, the checkout people with the registers. Yeah, I did all that kind of stuff. Well, you were real busy with that, but I wonder, did you ever think about going back to your career as a barber? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll tell you, I cut so many hairs in my neighborhood that found that out. Just make the arrangements, and I go over to their house and cut them. Oh, that's good. That's good. But I did not accept, and my dad told me that. He says, don't accept any money gratuity. He says, because then you got a, a friend for life. <laughs> it was right. <laughs> All those years when you're back from the war and you're raising a family and you're busy at work, you never discussed anything about your Korean experience, your war experience. Not very much, no. Uh-uh. Why was that? I didn't, I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. I wanted them just to rejoice that I was home, you know. I did what I had to do, you know. It was just like giving up your life and fighting for the United States. Right. So your your attitude then was just let it be, and if the kids ask you a question or two, they they knew you were in the Korean in the war and that you had been yeah. wounded, but they didn't know much more than that. No, uh-uh. I never wanted to really talk about it, you know. Yeah. Well, then, Rick, the eldest of your children, suggests to you, maybe you want to try honor flight. And what did you think about that when he raised that topic with you? Well, I think that was great. That was probably one of the best things that could happen to any veteran. Uh, my brother-in-law was a Marine. He never went to war, but he was he was training guys and and he got wind of the honor flight, and he got a hold of me, and he says, he says, Rich, he says, I'd like, si- like to sign you up for the honor flight, too. You can go with us. You know, we'll have a group. So there was four of us that knew each other, and, and we all got in, the, in that plane. But when it came time to have a person be a guide with you, I didn't want to just any Joe Blow or whatever Rick was working already for Southwest Airlines. I asked Rick about that, and he says, yeah, he says, I think I can get off and do that with you. I said, oh, man, that'd be super, super great. And thank God for Rick, because he was right at my side throughout that whole day. Rich Bernier's oldest son, Rick, is a veteran flight attendant for Southwest Airlines. He's been on dozens of honor flights out of Chicago, in other cities as well. So when the opportunity came to serve as a guardian for his dad, he was thrilled, and at the same time, curious as to how his father would handle a chapter in his life that had remained so silent. He very seldom would talk about it. He might have talked about some of his brothers from time to time, but uh, I never noticed him to ever like say, well, this is what happened in Korea and give us a lot of insight to what, you know, how he was hurt, uh, how he was in hospital in Japan. He, he would never just bring it up. Plus, we had a lot of kids in our family. We had eight siblings. So it was quite a, you know, it was quite a show at our house all the time right, growing right. up. And I think that my dad just wanted to forget it. Very politely, he would, he would 
like say, oh, you know, you don't want to know what's going on, what happened over there. It was terrible. But he never gave us any details. My mom would sometimes say, well, this is what happened, that your dad was in the hospital in Japan for many months after almost getting killed, that kind of thing. So how did the honor flight thing start? Did, did you originate because you'd been on honor flights with Southwest as a flight attendant? Yes, okay. exactly. And I know other flight attendants and pilots have, have done the same uh, before me and after me, especially after me, because, uh, you know, w- once I went on that with my dad, I really, <laughs> I really said, hey, every veteran should go on that. It, it was just amazing. And it was amazing for, for me and my family and my brothers and sisters family to know that, you know, here dad probably had a lot of this on his chest for a long time. And he was able to let go emotionally, physically, everything, because, you know, when, once he went on that honor flight, he it was like going back in time for him and remembering, wow, this is what really happened to me. And people are finally realizing they're they're honoring us. Where was it that you saw that emotional, physical release? Well, actually, it, it started a little bit on the plane because some of the combat veterans that were on there, there was, there was a few of them on there. Uh, he started talking to them, and then these guys were talking like they were high school kids. He started bringing up names of guys that, that he was with in Korea that he had never mentioned before. When we landed in Washington, D.C., by that time he knew, wow, I'm being honored with 93 other men that went through what I went through. Not all of them went through what that what he went through, but he felt like he was part of a group. I never seen him so happy. To me, I thought it was quite emotional for him because once he got there, he was so full of life and going to see all the, the monuments. And then we came upon the monument for the Korean War. And that's when his emotions really came through because he was brought back in time. And then I realized this is what he's been keeping inside for so long. Did he explain some of the things that had happened to him? Yes. So he told you he told you this, and you had never heard that before. Never, never. I didn't know it was a bomb that was hitting that foxhole. I didn't know three other guys died next to you. You know that kind of thing. All these years, and you know, growing up till I was in my twenties, and I left the house, and my brothers and sisters were all going away to college, all that kind of stuff. And we can, we never knew that. You know, we honored these soldiers on a one day of a holiday during the year, we honored them and most of the time pretty well. But when it came to any special honor, there's nothing better than this honor flight. I I just couldn't believe how well put together it was and how it was so beneficial for all the people that were on the plane, men and women that served in the military. When your dad told you that story, did you hug him or just stand in amazement? Uh, of course. I was more afraid my dad was going to break down permanently at that point because he, he he got really emotional. And I'll never forget because the way the Korean uh, monument is, the the figures, they look so lifelike. And he says, that's exactly what I wore. It all came back to him. But I think it came back to him for a reason. I, I think that he needed to be at peace with this, knowing that other people cared that they were actually over there. And I, I, I can only imagine what was going through his 
his mind when he saw that. I mean, the sounds and the smells and, and all that must have just like hit him like a ton of bricks after, what, 60, 70 years? always been a proud man, a proud of his family, proud of everything. But I think that piece was missing. And it was the final piece that he needed in his life to make his life feel like he's been complete and, and has done good his whole life, which he has done good his whole life. But I think that was the final piece to the puzzle. He's always been a giver his whole life. And to finally have the honor flight giving to him this kind of peace and satisfaction and and being honored so well, it's uh, it's amazing. It's amazing to him and our our entire family. Rick tells me that he was just amazed at all this stuff that's pouring out of you. You just release it all. It's all gushing out. You're telling him experiences that he had no idea you went through all this stuff. Yeah, I know. How emotional was that for you? Very emotional, yeah. I can feel my eyes getting a little tears. <laughs> sure. But life goes on, you know, and you try to make your way. After, that That's just a chapter in my life, that's all. You know, it's good to remember and talk about it, but, I mean, life goes on. When you look back on that day in, in 2016 when you went to Washington, D.C. with Rick, what do you think, on whole, what did the whole experience mean for you? What did it do for you? Well, it was like, it's like you got a bad shoulder, and you go to the doctor, and he gives you a cortisone shot. And all at once, he said, oh, my God, it's so great. And that's what it feels like. It feels like you went through a mess. But, you know, things are better now than they were, and hopefully they'll stay better. Well, thanks for spending some time with me and sharing your story. It's a remarkable okay. one. And okay. I'm glad that you had uh, just a, a very good experience on your flight. Yeah. A day of honor. Yeah, right. Thanks. Well, you take care, Rich. Thanks very much. Okay, Paul. Thank you, too. Okay. All right. You have a great day. hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.